This morning, we are continuing our series in the book of Hebrews and looking at the reality of Jesus as our intercessor, uh, the function of Jesus as our high priest, really as our advocate. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can feel free to turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. And I want to read that for us this morning. I'm actually going to start a couple verses behind in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. This is what the author of Hebrews writes. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we, pro- we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our times of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness." This is why he has to offer sacrifices even for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So the writer to Hebrews basically is attempting in this section of Scripture to demonstrate to his audience, and therefore to demonstrate to us, that Jesus is a rightful high priest, and in fact a better high priest than any high priest before him. Uh, And how he goes about doing that is first he wants to set out what the qualifications of a high priest were. And then secondly, he wants to demonstrate how Jesus not only filled those qualities or had those qualities, but actually exceeded anyone else in those qualities. And then on the basis of this, he has an urge for us, which we read at the very beginning of this section, that we would hold fast, stay firm, go boldly and with confidence to the throne of the Father. And so that's kind of the way we want to look at it this morning. So first, qualifications of a high priest. There are really four things that the writer to Hebrews relays here, and you can find them all throughout the Old Testament as well. The first is that to be a high priest, you had to be appointed or chosen by God. That is, that you did not self-appoint yourself high priest. You did not decide, this is what I want to be. You did not run for this. This was an appointment that came from God uh, and was separate from all other appointments. When Moses was the leader, Aaron was the high priest, and it was Aaron's singular function uh, in that way and form. God designates the high priest and appoints them. 
Secondarily, and this might seem silly to you, but it's very important to the writer to Hebrews, to be a high priest, you have to be a human being, right? And you're thinking, of course, right? Unless Alf from Melmac is going to serve as high priest in some way. <laughs> you had to be human. But what the, what the writer wants to, us to understand is that in, in the human function, you're actually functioning in, in the way the original language is written. It's sort of in a middle function. That is that you are... You are serving and with God, but you're also representing the people. You're striking that middle balance that can only be accomplished through your humanity and relation to the people around you. And of course, therefore, uh, one of the qualifications to be a high priest is that you would be from the tribe of Levi, that you'd be a Levite. Third thing, third quality or qualification to be a high priest is that you needed to make atonement for the sins of the people. You need to make atonement for the sins of the people. And so the priests regularly would make sacrifices on behalf of the people. Very specifically, once a year, uh, would make a sacrifice uh, of atonement for all of the people. It speaks there of even the ignorance of the people, right? So the high priest was even making sacrifices for all of the sins the people committed that they didn't even know they were doing. You know, So the high priest had this really important function to cover the people in atonement in this way. And then lastly, the high priest had to share, and this kind of goes to their humanity, had to share in the weakness of the people. So they had to be able to sympathize or relate. This kind of, the, the, the relate word is where the language of being the middle person, right? And the idea is representing God's standard, but also being one of the people, and therefore, not kind of going overboard in your leniency to people because you're representing God, but they're also not going overboard in your severity and punishing the people because you can relate to them. It says in the first couple of verses of chapter 5 that even the high priests needed atonement for their own sinfulness. They could relate. They were sympathetic. They understood the plight of the people of God. So these are the four kind of qualifications or qualities of the high priest. That is, they were appointed by God. They were human. They were uh, to make atonements or sacrifices for the sins of the people. And then lastly, they shared in uh, or related to the weakness of the people. So on the basis of these four things then, the writer to, he, to the, the Hebrew audience here wants to show them that Jesus in fact functions in all four of these important ways. First thing he wants us to know is that he is appointed by God. That is that Jesus did not show up and declare, I'm the high priest. God declared it about him. Right? And in fact, this sort of would have been a very difficult thing for the people of the day to understand because we understand uh, in Jesus' genealogy that he can trace his roots back to David and therefore kind of has the rightful line of a king or Messiah, but he couldn't trace his lineage back to the tribe of Levi, and therefore was not a rightful, by human standards, high priest. But it's God who speaks to him and says, I am your father, and you are my son. And then the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 110, which might be the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament, where David is writing, and it kind of really speaks about the pre-incarnate reality of Jesus there. Uh, He says in the beginning of Psalm 110 that the Lord spoke to my Lord, and and many scholars believe this, the reality of the Father and the Son functioning there. 
But he says that you will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is an interesting sort of mysterious figure in the Bible, and I won't bore you with any of that now. We'll probably bore you with that in one or two weeks in Hebrews chapter 7 when he shows up again. But know this, Melchizedek is, is living in the days of Abraham, and he has a dual function. He's both a king and a high priest, which is not seen anywhere else. And so when this designation is made about Jesus, this is in fact exactly what is being said about Jesus. That he is both our rightful king and also our rightful high priest. A royal high priest. A fascinating and in some ways unbelievable reality. But also this idea of an unending priesthood that is referred to in Psalm 110 and really referred to uh, in the priesthood of Melchizedek. Therefore, that not only is Jesus king and high priest, but also king and high priest forever. There'll never need to be another one of either of those things. So the writer to Hebrews wants us to know, in quoting from David, in quoting Psalm 110, and in speaking about Jesus, that Jesus is, in fact, the appointed high priest by God the Father himself. High priest, appointed by God. Second thing, that he was human, right? That he was human. And so, of course, he talks much about his suffering that ultimately leads up to his death on the cross, his obedience learned through suffering. And suffering is the key way that you can point to the humanity of Jesus, especially in kind of these uh, Hebrew circles, And there's something that we should know about Jesus, right? That's that in our sort of binary kind of remnants of modernity that live in our world and really live in the church, that it's really hard for us to honestly consider Jesus as a man. We love Jesus as God, right? But it's very hard for us to live with Jesus as a man. And so instead of sort of living in the Philippians 2 reality that Jesus is fully God and fully man, we live in the, I believe he was man, but I'm going to just deal with him as God. Right? And there's tons and tons of remnants of of Gnosticism in, in that reality, and if that doesn't make sense, we can talk about that later. That we sort of don't value the earthly body experience that we have and that Jesus had, and instead put much more emphasis on the, out, the outer body, future to come, and kind of who Jesus was as, as God. And, and he is those things, but also what the writer to Hebrews wants you to know and why Hebrews chapter 2 was so radically important with statements like, he was not ashamed to call you a brother or a sister, right? Is that in order for Jesus to function as the high priest, he had to be human. He couldn't just be a a rendering of God on earth that kind of came and magically went through all these things and checked all of these boxes and then returned to being God. He had to be human. It's why Paul, Paul harps on this time and time again, but I think nowhere more importantly than in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, when he says that in the appointed time, Jesus came born of a woman born under the law 
so that he might redeem those who were condemned by the law and therefore provide for them as adoption as sons and daughters. That is that our salvation, our union with Jesus is dependent upon his humanity and certainly dependent upon his divinity as well. And friends, let me just make this point kind of in passing a little bit. That Jesus remains fully human. He didn't just take on humanity and then give it up and go back to to being full divinity. He remains fully human, fully divine. It's what enables him still, and we'll talk about the importance of this in a moment, to function as your and my and everyone's high priest. Apart from his continuing humanity and ability to relate and sympathize with us as brothers and sisters, he cannot function in that way. And so Jesus did not sort of shed his humanity and go back to heaven. No, he gained new humanity, right? In the same way that we fully will to. Jesus' humanity, radically important for this Office of high priest to function. So Jesus appointed by God. Second, his humanity. And then third, that he had to make atonement for the sins of the people, right? And the writer to Hebrews kind of sums it up in, in, in one quick sentence. He says, and once made perfect, he became, this is verse 9 of chapter 5, the source of eternal salvation for all who obey. Of course, it's the cross where Jesus makes the full atonement for the sins of the people. And, though he is sinless, and we'll talk about this in a moment, he takes on sin, Paul says, so that he might set us free from sin. Functioning in that high priest's role of experiencing sin in order to make the full atonement for everyone. You see this? The writer to Hebrews is showing us that Jesus... The God-man is functioning in the full sense of what the high priest was supposed to be, but never could fully be. It was Aaron who told the people to start crafting a golden calf. It was the priest in the days of Samuel who God had to raise up a young boy to say, I'm done with you. Right? The high priest that had always fallen short of living in this perfect middle ground of relating to God and relating to man. And now in Jesus, we have everything that God intended. Appointed by God, fully human, able to make the full sacrifice for the atonement. Later in in Hebrews, it'll say that his sacrifice was a once for all. It is done. It is done. Finish. No more regular sacrificing. No more experiencing the fear and trepidation of the Day of Atonement with high priests' ankles dangling with bells to see if he was still alive in the presence of God. And then lastly, he wants to show us the weakness of Jesus. Now, we struggle to go here, right? Because <laughs> we, we love the superior Jesus, and and rightfully so. He wants to show us the weakness of Jesus, and he he does it in two ways. The first is kind of at the end of chapter 4, he says that he was tempted in every way. Did you catch that? Now, if you're like me, and you think about Jesus being tempted, you think, it's kind of not fair, right? 
you and I, we experience temptation. We know what that's like, and it's painful, and it's awful, and we usually lose that battle. But then here's Jesus, right? Now, but listen, because we love Jesus as God, not as man. And so we fail to realize the depths and severity of the temptation that Jesus himself experienced. I never really thought about this, but think about it logically. If for you and I, we can say, and I'm just making a statement here, and I'm kind of basing it on a C.S. Lewis quote, perhaps you have much more perseverance and strength than the typical person. But if you can resist temptation, say, for five minutes of the onslaught of the enemy, tempting you uh, in, in a wrong way, in a wrong attitude, in a wrong judgment, whatever it is, in a shortcut of some way, ultimately in honoring yourself, idolizing yourself and your flesh, rebellion against God, you can, if you can handle that for five minutes before giving in, imagine what it would be like for 10 or 15 or 20 or 40 days and nights in the wilderness. C.S. Lewis says this. It's fascinating to me. A man who, who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what would have been like an hour later. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. Explaining that, in fact, Jesus experienced temptation in far worse ways than we could ever imagine. Not to mention the fact that he was tempted by the devil himself. Right? We do not believe that the devil is omnipresent. Right? He can't just show up wherever he wants to. He's bound to time and space. And so the temptation that we face is likely from some lower level minion. And Jesus stares the devil in the face in the wilderness after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting and resists temptation after temptation after temptation, knowing full well what's to come later in his life. Jesus, as our high priest, has experienced the full sense of temptation, tempted in every way. So do not give in to the subtle lie in your mind that, "Uh oh, he was God. No, he gets it. He knows what it's like to live this life. He knows how hard it is. He knows how tempting it is to say, yeah, I'll bow down to you and receive all the kingdoms of the world rather than having to die a shameful death in order to be raised up. This is the high priest who can relate to our weaknesses, who can sympathize with us. He wasn't here waving magic wands and casting things away. No, he got into the midst of it. He was not ashamed to call us brother and sister. And then secondarily, knowing the full weakness, that is physical death. This is what the author speaks of here to the people. He says, when he was on earth, you catch this? He prayed with shouts and tears. You hear this? to the one who could save him from death. What is he talking about? This is probably the Garden of Gethsemane, right? 
where Jesus is pleading with the Father, there's got to be another way. The cross, I am not interested in this, you know? Help me, rescue me, do this to me. And the Father says, no. Have you ever pleaded with God for a different path? Have you ever begged God to reverse tragedy in your life? Have you ever had to wrestle with the pain and mystery of not getting a yes from God in the midst of that? That's so hard. As your pastor, some of you might believe I'm paid to be able to give you answers to that. I got nothing for you. Except that we have a high priest who dealt with that very thing. And he says, come to me. Come to me. I'm not going to give you some pat religious answer that you're supposed to just suck up and believe and go on. No. He says, I get it. It's hard. But Jesus <laughs> pleads with the Father, whom he has represented flawlessly. Let's find another way. And he is told, no. And then it says, he learned, did you catch this phrase when I read it earlier? Fascinating, right? He learned obedience through suffering. Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Jesus didn't learn anything, right? Uh, N.T. Wright gives an illustration that I think fits this, right? That when, when a, a father who has built up a great sort of company or business or whatever, and his son comes up and the father's ready to sort of give his son sort of ownership of the company, There's many different ways that can happen. One of the ways that that can happen is the father just says, here you go. Come sit in the the penthouse office and run the show. That's not the way this transaction happened. This transaction happened by the father saying, hey, go down to the mail room and work down there for a while. And slowly work your way up. Ultimately, through his death, he was glorified. This is what the writer to Hebrews means when he says he learned obedience. He didn't learn anything. But he proved his ability to serve as high priest and as king through his demonstrated human obedience. This is a man who we can follow. Do you see it? He wasn't just handed the keys to the empire. No, he came and was like us and lived amongst us and lived the kind of life that we live in, perhaps far worse. And yet showed us obedience through suffering. Jesus is the perfect high priest appointed by God, fully human, able to stand in the middle ground so that he is not too lenient, not too severe, offering what we'll find out in a moment, grace and mercy to anyone who would come to him. Do you see this? 
making the full atonement that comes ultimately through his weakness. This is God's vision for a high priest. And so you say to me, or at least I picture you saying to me, so what? (laughs) Thank you for a theological lesson. I guess I believe that. (laughs) What difference does any of this make? Well, the difference that it makes is what we read at the end of chapter 4. Listen to this again. Therefore, since we have this kind of high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We do not have a high priest who is not able to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What difference does this make? The writer to Hebrew believes if you truly believe that Jesus is the high priest that God has always desired for his people, then you can hold firmly to the faith you profess. That is, all of the things in this world that will want to kind of wreck your faith trajectory, kind of pull you off to one side or the other, including most prominently your own flesh. that this high priest's work of Jesus actually can be greater than that and can enable you to, as he'll write later in chapter 12, run this race effectively. No matter what you find your current circumstances to be, in your relationships, in your vocational journey, the financial issues of your day, whatever it might be, If we really believe this about Jesus, then we have what we need in order to hold firm. Why? A couple of things he says here, right? The first is that we have a high priest who's in heaven. (laughs) And we might say, oh, yeah, duh. But Jesus is in heaven, right? This is a fascinating fact that we need to understand. He says he he went straight to heaven, and there were no stopping, right? The monopoly, do not pass go, do not collect $200, whatever, to go... Monopoly, you go to jail. That's not where he went. He went to heaven. It's not jail. Let's not mix those up. <laughs> so Jesus goes straight to heaven. And, and, and there's two things that kind of are at play here. The, the first that we, thing that we need to understand in Jesus' presence in heaven after his earthly ministry and life is that the sacrifice of atonement that he provided is complete. It's finished. It's done. It's wrapped up. Bow on top. Done. It's why at least four, possibly five times in the book of Hebrews alone, the writer says that he is seated, past sense, done at the right hand of God the Father. That is that there is no more atoning work that this high priest has to accomplish for you and for me. All of our missteps, all of our failings, all of our brokenness is wrapped up and complete in the atoning work of Jesus. It's why he announces on the cross, it is finished. He does not mean, I'm done breathing, I'm going to die. He means the work of atonement is done. 
So, friends, if this is true, then you can stop your self-help programs of religion. Because they're not needed. The high priest has made the sacrifice of atonement. You do not need to present a full card of gold stars to God. It's not needed. Now, you should want to do it in response to what Jesus has done, but not for the gold stars. These kind of self-help, self-betterment, religious projects that all of us are kind of on to kind of prove ourselves, even in some ways, kind of sinister ways, to prove to Jesus that, oh, by the way, we were worth what you did. He already knows that, or he wouldn't have done it, right? Here's, Here's a high priest who was pleading with the Father for another way. And his prayers of take it away were changed to prayers of obedience through suffering that says, your will be done. Why? Because he already believed that you were worth it. So stop. Stop trying to prove to him that you're worth it. That stuff is done. When it says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, that means if you're joined with him, so are you. It is finished. Stop striving so hard. That's why in Hebrews chapter 4 it says, Jesus, those who truly believe Jesus, enter into his rest. The sacrifice is finished. What is not finished is Jesus' advocacy for us. Jesus is not on some kind of European holiday. (laughs) He's not on break. He's not taking a long nap. You know, he's not catching up on all the seasons of whatever TV show he loved that he missed while he was on earth, you know? He's fully functioning in his high priest role now just as much as he was on earth. No longer needing to make the sacrifice, but constantly being that middle person who is fully with God, but fully with humanity. Constantly advocating for us. 1 John Chapter 2, verse 1 says that, hey, don't sin. Crazy words that these Bible writers say. But then he follows it up. He should have just not said that, right? He follows it up with, if you do sin, because he knows that that first part's not going to happen. If you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. This is the work that continues. Do you see it? Jesus advocating for us pleading for us, and his advocacy to the Father, his intercession to the Father on our behalf is in much the same form as his prayers for us and for his disciples when he was on earth. I think of two very famous ways that Jesus says he prayed. The first is in John chapter 17 when he says, when he prays for himself, then he prays for his disciples, and then he goes on to pray for those who will Come to faith because of the disciples. That means you and me, right? And everyone before us. And his prayers are kind of, kind of two, maybe two and a half things, right? The first is that they would be one. That they would be united together. Because he knows the value of, in community of not falling away. Of sticking to it. Of being faithful to the end. He also knows the value of the witness of a one church as opposed to a splintered million different pictures. 
And he also says, and that they might be in me, in Jesus, and therefore in you, Father. Right? That the ultimate kind of goal of the prayer of Jesus is that we would experience this close intimacy with him, and therefore with God the Father. Why? Because that's what our whole life purpose is. It's kind of be these holistic worshipers of God. This is how you don't fall away. And then in Luke chapter 22, <laughs> Jesus says to Peter, he says, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And Jesus knows what that means, right? He puts it kind of in nice language, probably, of what Satan really wanted to do. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith might last. And then he says this interesting thing. He says, and when you are restored, that you might be with your brothers. In other words, kind of knowing that I prayed for you, but you're going to still deny me three times. But ultimately, that you might be restored. And so we see sort of in these prayers of Jesus kind of his heart in interceding or, or advocating for us. One, that we'd be joined together in following him. Two, and most importantly, that we'd be in Jesus. See, he's praying for our perseverance in faith. He's advocating for our perseverance in faith, that we would not fall away. That even as the devil attempts to come at us, and the devil and his minions to come at us, that we would persist, that we would stick to the path, that our eyes would be fully fixed on Christ, that we'd be moving all the way towards these realities. And that, oh, when we fall off the path, that we might be restored and pulled back in to the fold. I think the advocacy of Jesus as our high priest in heaven is still very much like this now. That he's pleading with the Father to give us everything we need to be faithful and that much more. He's pleading with the Father for us to be joined together so that we would not fall away. And he's constantly claiming his sacrifice for us so that we can continually be restored when we fall off the path. This is our high priest. I think sometimes, remember when the disciples said to Jesus, hey, teach us how to pray. And he said, Pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We all learn these in the old King James Version, right? Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. I feel like that's an advocacy prayer, isn't it? I feel like those are the kind of things that Jesus is saying to the Father on our behalf. Hey, give them what they need today. Deliver them from evil, he goes on to say in the Lord's Prayer, right? Hey, Satan is asking to sift them like wheat. No, deliver them from that. It even says in, in the one prayer, very specifically, deliver them from the evil one, Satan himself, right? And what is he going to say? And lead them not into temptation, right? It's our advocacy kind of reality. He's calling us to pray that for, him, for ourselves because in this is how he understands prayer, right? The Lord, teach us how to pray. Well, here's how you should pray. This is Jesus' 
advocacy as our high priest. He is not kicked up on some plush, lazy boy cloud with his feet crossed and remote control in hand. He is seated at the right hand of the Father because the sacrifice is complete, but he has the ear of the Father because our life's earthly journey is not complete. Our high priest in heaven. But we also have a high priest right, who knows what earth is like. Right? He's tempted in every way. He knows what earth is like. He knows temptation. Right? He, he knows, maybe even more importantly, the methods of the temptors. He knows what Satan is like. He knows what Satan's minions are like. He knows what the systems of the world are like. And he knows what the flesh is like. He understood that at a young age, Herod tried to kill him to stop God's plan. He understands the temptation methods of Satan from his time in the wilderness. And he understands the full plot of Satan in the cross attempting to crush him. Our high priest knows this. He knows how we're tempted. He knows the plots against us. And therefore, he's the one who we should go to. I think in the same way, and maybe it's not explicitly stated here, but I think it's right, that he knows how this world works. And he knows the brokenness of our world. He knows what it's like to be busy. He knows what it's like to have great responsibility. He knows what it's like to have family strife. Remember the issues with his brothers? He knows what it's like to be betrayed by the people closest to us. He knows what it's like to feel alone. He knows what it's like to go through deep valleys of sadness where his blood or where his sweat is like drops of blood. All aspects of the brokenness of our world, he knows them intimately. And then lastly, the high priest in heaven who knows earth. And lastly, a high priest who wants to help. Who wants to help. So he says, so come and you will receive grace and mercy in your time of need. These words grace and mercy are important words, right? Uh, Grace and mercy is is kind of like two sides of a coin, if the coin was the gospel. With mercy, we do not get what we do deserve. With grace, we do get what we do not deserve. You follow that? With mercy, we do not get what we do deserve. What do we deserve? Well, Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. We deserve judgment, punishment. Mercy says you don't get any of that, even though you deserve it. Grace says, but you do get everything you don't deserve. Adoption as sons and daughters into the family of God. The full sense of life and of joy. Life to the fullest, the life we were always supposed to. 
always meant to live. Grace and mercy. But also, I think, in a sense, grace and mercy refer a little bit to this idea of mercy providing redemption and restoration in the missteps of our lives. Where our high priest advocates for our re-inclusion into the family of God. And grace, referring in many ways to the conferring of, of spiritual sustenance for the day and days ahead. Jesus, as high priest, is restoring us, those who would return to obedience, restoring us into the family of God and continuing to provide all that we need for this day and the one to come. Jesus is the perfect high priest, our intercessor. And this is not just important if you want to, quote unquote, have good theology. This matters because you live in a broken, broken world. And I don't know about you, but my time of need is every day. My time of need is when I'm thinking too much about myself and when I feel like I've got no chance. My time of need is when I'm having great successes and therefore given to great temptation and when I'm having my worst failures. It's in those things that we can turn to our high priest and trust him because he learned obedience through suffering. And know that he has the ear of the Father. And know that he understands what it means to live this life. I'm going to finish with this picture. There's this really famous picture of John F. Kennedy's presidency. You're familiar with this? This picture of John F. Kennedy Jr. sitting in the in the sort of the floor of his dad's presidential desk, and the front kind of door opens up, and he's just, he's just sitting in there while his dad's hard at work. And it's this beautiful picture of what it means to have access that others do not have. Right? Imagine if that picture had me sitting in there. How ridiculous that would be, and how quickly I would be dragged out, and whatever, you know. No, but JFK Jr. can be there because it's his dad. We do not have intimate access to presidents and rulers in this earth. But, because we are joined to our high priest, we have access to the one who is greater than any earthly leader. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22 says that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and all powers and authorities have been put in submission to Him. It matters that He is the high priest. And He says, you are a son and a daughter of the Most High God. So come sit at my feet while I work the work of my kingdom. I've got your back. I love you. The sacrifices are taken care of. You will find grace and mercy at my feet. Stop trying 
to blaze your own path in this world. And instead, turn your heart, and ultimately, as we know, the writer to Hebrews cares much, your thoughts to our high priest. Can I pray with you?